And this is the Love the Cove podcast, where we'll be diving into covenant history and exploring what makes the Evangelical Covenant Church covenant as we move toward our future together as mission friends. Hey friends, welcome to this final episode of Love the Cove season one. Because our vision for this podcast was born out of the theme of Sankofa, of looking back at our history in order to move forward together, we knew it would be appropriate to focus this episode on the Sankofa journey itself. So we have Sankofa veteran Nilwana Nolan as our guide. We've also enlisted our colleague, Jeremy White, who has served as our awesome Love the Cove tech support this season for his narrative skills. Plus, you'll hear from other Sankofa leaders and participants. Welcome to Sankofa. We invite you to jump on the bus with us. Before we jump into the actual journey, we'll hear from Dominique Gilliard, the Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for the Love, Mercy, Do Justice mission priority, as well as Nilwana with an overview on what Sankofa is and why it is so important. This is not some tour that we do just to check it off a checklist. This is something that is helping us to gain a more holistic understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it means for us to bear a faithful witness in a history that's rooted in this reality and that still reverberates to inform our present condition. Sankofa is, um, it's hard in probably every sense of the word. It's emotionally taxing, it's physically taxing. Um, you kind of get pushed to your breaking point physically when you're stuck, you're sitting on this bus for so many hours, um, losing sleep, sleeping on the bus. And yet, um, surprisingly, or maybe not, during the pandemic, the one year that there weren't any Sankofas, I found myself missing being crammed into that bus with my comp compression socks on you know, sleep deprived and all of the things. And and I, I would say probably the way I answered this question might've been different 10 years ago when I first started attending um, Sankofas. But I think, and sometimes I don't know how to answer the question. You know, I've written about it lots of times and I have these really deep things I say. And then other times I'm like, you just should do it. Um, it's particularly if we're thinking about our context in the U.S., um, because we know obviously the covenant spans across the globe, but looking specifically at the U.S. context, um, I think Sankofa is important because of this concept of looking back to move forward. Um, there's the, the quote that I'll probably butcher about um, if you don't know your history, you're doomed to re repeat it. And so it's really just this idea of reflection, looking back, where have we come from? And, you know, how do we learn from that and be better and move forward and being better together? 
I would say in particular, when we're looking back at the history of the U.S., for us as the church, we have to pay attention to the ways in which um, the church as an institution and the church as individuals played a role in these injustices that we're looking at historically. And so um, I think it's especially important for that reason um, to kind of look at where where have we gone wrong as a church and how are some of us still benefiting from that? And and I think sometimes if people can't acknowledge that truth, then it just gets really hard to move forward. Um, and then I also just think on an on sort of the smaller level. For us as covenanters, if we do talk about being better together um, and, and we look at our history as covenanters being very relational, um, it's hard to be relational if we're not willing to sit and hear other stories and sit in the pain with them. Um, and sometimes being willing to say, you know, I somehow have played a part in that and and continuing to perpetuate it. And how can I change? How can I be a better sibling in Christ to you? So it's, it's a lot. And so <laughs> it's all the things and it's, it's hard to talk about, but I, I think it's, it's important on so many of those levels. And then even just being able to visit these historical spaces um, that are important to our our history as a nation um just knowing some of this stuff learning the ways that laws were created and and how that's impacted the way we do things today um it's it's just it's all of that <laughs> the details of the sankofa trip have evolved over the years i remember my very first sankofa was in 2012 um debbie blue recruited me at midwinter so i think it was like that wednesday night at midwinter we were i think coming out of an aama gathering and she kind of recruited me and i think we left that friday so it was whenever like it was there was a time where they tried to plan sankofas attached to the end of midwinter so if people had already traveled to chicago they could just hop on the bus and so there was a time where you went through all of the exhaustion of midwinter right into Sankofa. And so now on that first night on the bus, um, usually we wind down. I think we watch one movie, have some discussions. And then by 10 o'clock, it's kind of lights out. But my very first Sankofa, we were gone until like 2 a.m. <laughs> and... So there was like, you know, documentaries and conversations. And so mind you, again, this is right after midwinter. And so it was it was brutal. But again, it's, you know, when you kind of break down people's walls, you kind of get right to the heart of the matter really quickly. So the bulk of my experience is um, we gather in Chicago at, at Covenant offices. Um, I think we start gathering around, I think it's like four o'clock. And, you know, people are, some people are flying in, probably more people are flying in than are coming local. And so really like the first hour, hour and a half is just people kind of trickling in, getting settled. And then um, we start off with a dinner. 
These days, Sankofa begins before participants even leave home. Pre-course work helps them begin to prepare their hearts and minds for the intensive journey ahead. For the next couple of hours until about 7 p.m., there's just some sort of kind of getting people oriented to what we're about to do. Um, a few kind of reflection questions that are designed to make people feel uncomfortable, um, but also really spending time doing a couple of things that are important to the experience, um, going over ground rules. And so, you know, making sure people understand the importance of using I statements. Um, confidentiality, you know, we're kind of, we're trying to build this community. Um, and then speaking of community, we do spend time kind of talking about PEC's um, four stages of community building. That is pseudo community, chaos, emptying, and true community. And when I'm leading this part of those sessions, I often will use language that I had learned probably in my 20s. Before I had heard of Peck's model, I had heard different language, but it rhymes, so it's easier to remember. And it's um, forming, storming, norming, and some people say transforming and others say performing. So it's really kind of helping people see we're going to go through these stages. And particularly, we highlight that chaos stage where um, you stopped with the niceties. He's like, oh, how are you doing? Oh, where'd you fly in from? Or, you know, oh, what church do you go to? And, oh, you know, kind of going through the nice things. And then, you know, after we've watched a few of these documentaries, now we're kind of going deeper and it's going to feel like chaos. People are going to feel uncomfortable and want to kind of, you know, be like the turtle and duck inside their shell. But we encourage people to stick with it because that's where, like, if you can push through that and continue um, just digging into the conversation, that's where some of the change is going to happen. Um, and then we also spend time just sort of theologically kind of talking through um, Bible passages that are kind of integral to that time. And, and of course, spending time praying. Um, and usually we, we specifically will, when people are sitting with their partners, sometimes we'll put people in um, partner groups of like four people. So two sets of partners. And they'll just kind of share with each other, what are you leaving behind? Um, and, and because we understand that people have families and work, homework, ministry, all kinds of things that don't stop because they're getting on the bus. Um, but we also really want people to try as hard as they can to be fully present. And so we spend intentional time letting people voice with each other. This is what I'm trying to leave behind and what I'm worried about. Um, and then we pray, you know, we do prayer in those small groups and then we do just a large group prayer to really, because this is, this is God's work that we're doing. Um, and we really want the spirit to be involved and, in, in, you know, guiding us and so prompting us to speak when we may not want to, but also <laughs> holding our tongue at certain times when we shouldn't speak. Um, and probably the hardest ground rule for people is um, no phones. But Cecilia used to collect phones and she's like, I want all the phones here. If, so if someone has an emergency, you call me. Give them my phone number. Here, 
Cheryl Lynn Kane, co-leader of the October 2022 journey, explains to participants why it's so important to put their phones away. We are asking and inviting you to, as much as possible, um, start to break some of those checkout habits that being alive in 2021 has for us. Nilwana is about to mention one of the most important parts of the Sankofa journey, partnership. As Cheryl Lynn describes first, the whole experience is modeled after the Freedom Rides of the 1960s. Sankofa really is kind of rooted in that picture and in that legacy of those Freedom Rides. Those Freedom Rides, uh, people were paired up, one white person with a person of color on the bus, and they would put the white person by the window because there was less chance that people would shoot a white person than there was a person of color. So there was some very strategic solidarity going on in those movements. And our hope that this bus brings out some of those strategic opportunities for us to, to think about through the Holy Spirit, right? What our subversive witness may be in this. So the conversations, including any frustration, tension, tears, and joy that the participants share with their partners is where much of the healing work happens. And so we really encourage people, you got to stay with your partner because that's what this is about. Um, the hope is that people are going to continue engaging with that partner when they get off of the bus. And the even bigger hope maybe is that people are finding partners that they're already in relationship with. Because that makes it a little easier to continue it when you get off of the bus. In the years where I first started going on Sankofa's, people could just sign up without a partner. And so then if they got to the point where they, you know, they had people who hadn't signed up with a partner and, and couldn't, you know, needed a partner, maybe couldn't find one. Um, then they would reach out to others to say, hey, we have someone who needs a partner. Can you can you do it? And. So I was like that go to person and partly because I had started to understand for me why it was why Sankofa was why it was important, I would say, for me to continue to be a part of that process as much as possible. And um, and I actually did that processing during the seminary Sankofa class, which at that time when I took it was taught by Velda Love. And the question we had to answer the question, you know, why is it important or, you know, why, why should we go? And what I realized was. For me, I said, well, I can't be upset if white people don't get it, if I'm not willing to be a part of a process that is designed specifically to help people get it, you know, to really understand um, this history and. So I became like the, the go to person. If there was a white woman who needed a partner, they, you know, hey, Nawana, can you go on Sankofa? And and I'd say, sure. And. So it was a weird thing for me to be preparing to jump into these these conversations with a complete stranger. Um, but I have learned how to be a professional sharer. But the the unfortunate thing was that. Most of the people that I, I got partnered with did not stay in connection with me. Um, and so there's this feeling like, you know, they're going to go back to their home, their home church, their town, and 
tell these stories of this black woman who she shared these hard, painful stories with me. And then you just get to talk about my trauma, but not continue to follow up with me. But on the flip side of that, since we didn't have any relationship beforehand, it's very easy for them to do that. And so I, I, I do appreciate, I think now um, LMDJ does try to have the, uh, for them pro uh, providing a partner is they try for that to be the last resort. So people are really encouraged when you sign up, you have to have found a partner yourself. Um, and if, if, when people aren't able to do that, it, I think it also forces them to ask some questions about why can I not find a partner in my circle of friends or my church or my town? And that already makes them have to start asking some questions about either why have I not connected with that community or why is that community not even here? Um, and so now it's there are fewer times now where they have to reach out to find people um, to serve as partners. So I think that is a good thing. So that night after we do all of the orientation stuff, we get on the bus. The bus is a large coach bus six feet across with two rows of chairs doubled up. It is the closest thing to home participants have for the next three days. A space for healing and growth, but a hard place to find comfort. We drive through the night and our end destination will be Birmingham, but we usually try to fit in one movie and some discussion questions on the bus before 10 p.m. kind of lights out. Historically, it's been Four Little Girls, the documentary by Spike Lee. And we watch that and hopefully we'll finish it just as we are pulling up to our breakfast site. Um, but I remember one of my, it might have been the first or second Sankofa. Um, I remember as the movie was ending, we were pulling up to the 16th Street Baptist Church, which is the, is the focus of the documentary for people who may not know. And it was just this intense moment for me. Um, so we get set up for that church visit um, at our breakfast stop. At, at Magic City, the food was certainly one of the high points. There's this amazing Southern breakfast buffet. But more than that, it was... Um, we got to spend time with um, Minister Jean, who uh, was a woman who in her teens had participated in some of the children's marches in Birmingham. And, you know, she tells the stories of what it feels like to have those fire hoses on your skin. Um, and so, you know, she really she shares a lot of her story. And in my experience, I've, I've seen we've done trips so I've been on trips, Sankofa trips with different age groups. So I've been with the denomination and it's kind of a, a, a broad range of ages, but generally like 20s and up. But I've also been with the North Park students and um, especially with the North Park students. This is a really key point of the trip like they and I think it's just that idea of being able to hear from someone who lived through this time um, and and. So for for all the different age groups, this is a high point of the trip, um, which is really great because it starts so early on. 
And from there, we go to the 16th Street Baptist Church. And, um, you know, they've got a few video presentations that they do. And then there's just kind of time to walk through that space, um, which is really holy ground. Um, And across the street from the church is the Kelly Ingram Park, which is was the staging ground for most of those marches. And so they've got different uh, statues throughout the park that is kind of a walking tour that people can do. Um, But then we also go to the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute, which is also it's on the other corner from the church. And so um, that's the morning of the first day. And it feels like a lot. Um, Then we usually travel to Montgomery for the afternoon and in Montgomery, um, I feel like they keep adding on to their their facilities there. But initially, we just we went to EJI over the years now. Um, obviously, EJI, that stop has has expanded from um, not going to the office, but now we're going to the Legacy Museum. And I want to welcome you all to the sacred grounds of the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. This is where we focus on the lynch victims between the periods of 1877 and 1950. Well, these boxes actually, we call them pillars, and they represent a county or a parish within the United States. So, as I stated, 800 counties and parishes and 4,000 names. So, each name that you see, you see beginning again, because without two sources of documentation, we do not put that information in. So, that also lets you guys know that there are thousands that none of us know anything about. And one of my most memorable moments of Sankofa happened at EJI. Um, Before we had started going to the museum, we were in the office building and the staff gave a presentation and then they showed us a video about Anthony Ray Hinton, who was um, a black man who had been on death row unjustly for about 30 years. And so the video they show is because with the work of Brian Stevenson and all the EJI staff, they were finally able to get him released. And so the video that we watched was it was a 2020 video where they were just kind of following him after he had been released. And as he's basically trying to learn how to live in a world that he knows nothing about, he, you know, 30 years from when he was incarcerated, you know, ATMs and emails and, you know, like all of these things he's got to get used to. And so, you know, then they also gave the background of his case. And I remember watching this and just crying my eyes out because I was so angry at what had happened. Because in a nutshell, um, his case, first of all, the police had lied, you know, to, to get him arrested. And they said, it doesn't matter if you're guilty or not because you're black. And so they're gonna convict you. And he had been, I believe he had been on death row for about 15 years or so when Brian Stevenson had been working and working. And they finally found a break in the case where basically they discovered that the the ballistics report and like there were just issues with that. And they had new evidence that could 
get him exonerated. But um, the prosecutor refused to look at it, just wouldn't even look at it, wouldn't even consider it. And so then he basically spent another 15 years on death row because they didn't want to look at the evidence. And so I'm I'm just like angry. And I'm one of those people very rarely when I cry in public. Is it because I'm sad? <laughs> it's usually because I'm just like frustrated and angry and, and it just comes out in tears because I don't know what to do. And so they had a Q&A time and, you know, I'm just bawling and like and trying to keep it together and be, you know, not do the ugly, loud cry. And someone asked, um, so, you know, well, how is he how is he doing now? And, you know, they said, well, may, our, our next guest will probably be able to give you an update on that. And so then we turn around and this man walks in the room. And now, like, you know, I was trying to hold it together, <laughs> but it's just over. Like everyone's just like sobbing and like clapping. And like, it was amazing. And but then also heartbreaking because he told us how um, and I mean, he's a very tall man. If you've you've seen him, he's he's very tall. And he talked about how, you know, now he had um, like a California king bed, like very huge bed. But he said he still like slept in the fetal position because, you know, it, he was still that's it's hard to break that that mental hold. Um, he said that he still I forget the exact times, but kind of the they're allowed to shower like once a day or it's like something these weird hours of the day, like, you know, breakfast at 3 a.m. or and all of those those that schedule that he was so used to for 30 years, he was still stuck to, even though now, you know, he's out, he's free, he can do whatever he wants. But, it, you know, it just showed how hard that hold is on people. So, um, I mean, yeah, his his story is is one of the most amazing ones I've heard, in particular, how he talked about his faith in God. Um, because I don't know that I would, you know, I don't know. People would like to say, oh, sure, I, I would I would trust the Lord. I would. But I don't know. I don't know that I would. I would hope that I would. But I don't know. And so I I was really inspired, though, by his story to, you know, now if this man can be on death row for 30 years and didn't do the crime. And and now he did. He, he talked about in his his autobiography that there was a time where like. He just didn't even pick up his Bible for a few months, which is, I think, understandable. But then ultimately, you know, like he kind of comes to, you know, he's like, OK, well, this is it's, I'm here now. What do I do? And so um, that inspires me to think that, OK, well, if he can do that in that situation, then I need to be able to continue strengthening my faith. So Saturday morning, we start off by going to um, the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And, you know, we'll, we'll kind of lead into it with a little time of devotion and prayer. And, and usually if I'm doing it, there's some kind of singing involved. And we, we start off on the Selma side of the bridge, we gather everyone together and, you know, just kind of talk about what happened and what it means. And then we encourage people to see this as a, as a pilgrimage and to really think of this that that particular time um, as a sacred time. 
what we need to remember about this bridge is that this march that took place is called Bloody Sunday for a reason. Folks who participated will tell you that the blood was flowing so profusely that it was running to a degree down the bridge. Like folks literally lost their lives on this bridge for this fight for racial justice. And our driver's from Selma. And he talks about how after Bloody Sunday, his uncles would go out on the water and they'd fish and there would literally be skeletons that would wash up on the shores because of folks who either were thrown over the bridge or folks who saw the brutality and said, I'm going to try to jump off and swim to safety. So when we're talking about what we're doing on this trip, we are talking about people who literally gave their lives so that we can be gathered like this. We are talking about people who understood that the gospel is still good news when it could cost you your life. We are talking about folks like James Reed who came down from the North as a white man. This was not quote unquote his fight but he realized that the gospel called him to respond to suffering and sin when he saw it. And that he, as an agent of transformation, had to be compelled by love to come down and stand in solidarity and suffer with his brothers and sisters. Read the first day that the march was supposed to go on. They started down. Dr. King felt a troubling in his spirit and said, today is not today. We gotta turn around. Think about folks who came all the way down from the north, got all of their emotions riled up, ready to suffer and confront the powers that be. And then Dr. King just on a whim goes, not today. We turn around, we wait for the spirit. And that night when they waited for the spirit, Reed was in town and he got confronted by some white folks who thought that he had no place down here and literally beat him to death minister from Boston coming down to respond to the gospel literally got beat to death for being a race traitor. Like this is what we're inhabiting when we go into this space and across this bridge. We are talking about this is sacred space. Scripture talks to us about sacred space, holy space. We see this most explicitly with Moses encountering the burning bush steps off, takes the shoes off, the reverence the place. We are about to walk on sacred space. This has to permeate us and sit with us for us to understand the significance of what we're about to do. And to do it in this town under this bridge named for a symbol of oppression. We eat walk in our partner groups, you know, in our pairs, and we just walk silently over the bridge. And allow people to really just kind of think, and one of the things I always think about and, and often will highlight is those two groups of people, and you know, it's, it's featured in the movie Selma, so that very first group, 
they didn't know what was waiting for them on the other side. They literally didn't know because the bridge kind of goes up and then, you know, down. So you can't see at the beginning of the path what's on the other side. Um, and I think about that to, you know, walk into it not knowing, but suspecting maybe what's going to be on the other side. But then I think about the second group that went over who knew what had happened, like what was on the other side for the first group and and still chose to to, to take that journey. So um, that that I think is another part of the trip that's that's of great significance for a lot of people. And then we spend time just kind of talking about um, who is Edmund Pettus and does that change people's perceptions? Here's former participant Phyllis on her experience of walking over the bridge. It felt to me that that space was this, it was this ordinary place, but it was a really sacred place in my head. And that, I think that juxtaposition really bothered me a lot. And it still bothers me today. I think part of it was because people were just driving over it, this bridge, because it's just it's a, it's just a bridge that you use that you just drive over, and like nobody thinks anything of it. Like you know, people are like going over to work or whatever, wherever they're going, they're just driving over this. Um, and then we were there, and then we were like taking pictures and selfies and and kind of of this bridge, and I just, to me, I felt that we were on this sacred ground, a sacred space that should have more reverence and should not be so ordinary, yet it was so ordinary. From there, we drive up to Memphis, which is I think probably about a six hour drive or so. Um, and in Memphis, we visit the um, National Civil Rights Museum. Um, and so this is a museum that is built within the space of the Lorraine Motel, which is where Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. So the exterior of the motel is the same, but they've kind of, you know, they've put the, the, um, exhibits on the inside and and the the one part of the museum that still remains as a motel room are the rooms where um dr king and his party were staying um and it's the boarding house so yes the conspiracy theory museum which is the old boarding house where james earl ray stayed the night before he assassinated dr king and definitely one of my favorite probably the top of my list for Sankofa's um, visits is uh, we visit the Slave Haven Museum and it's it's operated and, and the tour guide is a woman named, um, we just call her Missy Lane, but she is phenomenal. Like she definitely has all of this black history and all of this Memphis history just in her head. Um, and one year when the, the museum, the National Civil Rights Museum was being uh, rehabbed, 
they were like they did a completely new overhaul. And so what you see now is the result of that. There's a lot more digital stuff, hands on that type of thing. But the year where they were doing that, um, Missy Lane took us. She she jumped on the bus with us and we just drove around Memphis and she gave us just this bus tour of Memphis um, and all kinds of amazing history. I'm going to truncate one thing that's still like I tell people this story often. She talks about Robert Church, who was um, the first black millionaire and he was from Memphis. And there was a point where they tried to kill him, like they tried to assassinate him and, you know, because he was doing too well and he survived it. And then years later, there was a. There was an outbreak. But now I can't remember if it was it was. Like TB, I don't remember. There was there was like basically there was an outbreak of a really contagious, deadly disease. And so many people died that Memphis was in in jeopardy of losing its charter. And this is a very long story short. The person who kept Memphis from losing the charter stepped up to pay the money or whatever that was needed was Robert Church. And so I was just like, what? That's like an amazing story, but it's not something, you know, I've ever really heard in a textbook. Um, so she has a wealth of knowledge, um, not just knowledge about the focus of her museum. Um, but so at the Slave Haven Museum, it is a house that was a part of the Underground Railroad. And it was owned by a German immigrant named Jacob, Jacob Burkle. And um, again, this it's. This is another one. In addition to um, Minister Jean, the Slave Haven stop is, is a, from what I've observed over the years, it's one that really kind of hits. It just because it's it it's all the senses like she manages somehow to like get all of the senses involved. And and I won't give it away because <laughs> there's a there's one particular thing that she does that really like brings it home for people. And again, from like all the different ages, this is a stop that I think really like if people haven't kind of connected and gotten it yet, it happens on this stop. Um, and then the last stop in Memphis after the slave haven is we go to dinner on Beale street and that's people can go, you know, we, we encourage people, number one, to stay with their partner and, and if possible, go in groups. And, um, but we, you know, people split up and go to different places. And I mean, it sounds like, oh, it's just dinner, but I think it's actually a very good part of the trip because it, everything we've seen, it's, it's, it's a heavy trip. And so it's nice for people just to be able to kind of go and, you know, again, see something historical like Bill Street and usually wherever you go, whether it's live music or something playing over the um, system, there's going to be blues playing. <laughs> and so it it's just that atmosphere, I think, helps people while we're still carrying all of what we just experienced. It's a little more lighthearted and because you've got to have a, a good balance, I think. And so if it's all heavy then it's hard for people to fully process. And so I think that that dinner on Beale Street is just a good break to kind of help people breathe for a moment. Um, and of course, get some good food. <laughs> um, 
And then that's it for kind of the traveling portion. Um, we ride, usually we drive through the night back to the Chicago area. So again, this is pre COVID changes. Um, but we would, um, our last stop would be to do our debrief at Hope Covenant Church in Orland Park and Orland Park, Illinois, for people who may not be from the Chicago area. Um, and so we usually are arriving there like 6 a.m. And there's this committed group of folks who would be, I mean, they had to be there before 6 a.m. because they fixed us breakfast and got everything set up. And they're just as chipper as can be, which is amazing to me. Um, but so, you know, we have time to have breakfast with them. Um, again, people are kind of, you know, freshening up and um, connecting, you know, food, just anytime you get to have food, it helps, it helps the mood. Um, but then after that, we'll go um, down into a, a space that's been set up for us and spend a good, probably two to three hours just doing a, a group debrief. And so it's, you know, reminding everybody of all of the stops that we've made and the conversations we've kind of talked about. And um, if things haven't sort of hit a point of chaos yet, <laughs> although they usually have, there are definitely like little chaotic moments that happen during debrief. Um, because again, now as people are starting to think through everything that they experienced um, and People are speaking their truths at this point. Um, and, and it's not always pretty. There's, there's a lot of anger involved. There's frustration. There's shame. So it's all there. Um, but one thing that we do is we have a candle in the middle to remind us that Christ is in the space with us that, and that light. And so through all that we went through, just that reminder not only is God was God with us then, but God is with us in that space and and is able to carry all of that pain and shame and guilt and all of all of the things that all of those emotions that people are carrying. Um, and then, you know, we we debrief, we <laughs> unpack it all. And then we we also encourage people to think about like what's next, you know, just somewhere in the back of their mind, because there there will be follow up emails and um, other resources that people can rely on. And then when we get back on that bus for the last time to head back to covenant offices, the atmosphere, you know, we've literally well, not literally, but almost gone through the fire. <laughs> and so now, you know. It's not the perfect community. I don't know if it's fully the that authentic community, but there's there's a little bit of a community more so than there was when we first stepped onto the bus. And so um, in some sense, the Sankofa experience, that trip is just the beginning. At least that's my hope.
Thanks, friends, for taking this journey with Nawana and us. We also want to thank you for your support throughout this first year of the Love the Cup podcast. We're grateful for what it has brought about and how it has helped sift through our past to help us understand how to move forward together as mission friends. Bye.